My name is Malcolm. I have the privilege of leading the church here at Dundonald. If you are joining us online for the first time, or if you're here for the first time, I don't take your presence here for granted, and I'm grateful to you for coming or for joining us from wherever you are. At the beginning of this year, we began a series of studies on different people in the Bible, and we've looked at Gideon and Samson. And last Wednesday evening, my colleague, uh, Pastor David Hume, began a series on exploring the life of Abraham. And I want to thank you, Davey, for your message last week. It was really excellent. For those of you that weren't here, let me um, invite you to open your Bibles, please, at Genesis chapter 12. And I'll do a brief recap, literally two minutes, of what Pastor Davey said, because I think it's very helpful. We're going to read from Genesis chapter 12, from verse 1 through to verse uh, 9. I read from the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible. You will need a Bible open somewhere tonight. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took his wife Sarai and his brother's son Lot and all the possessions that they had gathered and the persons whom they had acquired in Haran, and they set forth to go to the land of Canaan. When they had come to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he moved on to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and invoked the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on by stages towards the Negev. Amen. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. Last Wednesday night, in the first part of our exploration of Abraham, Davy reminded us that we were to think about the cast of our story with a wonderful visual aid of a family tree. If you haven't seen it online, please do take a look. And he told us that there were certain people that we would enjoy or not enjoy spending holidays with. Schedulers, spontaneous people, strayers, spenders and stressors. And then, as he looked at uh, the passage from Genesis 11 through down to verse 5 of Genesis chapter 12, he brilliantly picked out some of the people that are in this story and who they are as they journeyed with Abram. He described Terah as the one who stopped. Instead of following what God wanted, he stopped. He described Nahor as the person who stayed, didn't even make the journey. He described Lot as the person who strayed, got caught up with the wrong impression of things and made wrong choices. And he described Sarai as the one who stood 
the strongest of all the characters in the story as she waited and followed what God wanted. And he told us, where you choose to be planted is what you choose to produce. In other words, the environment you choose to live in, the context in which you choose to find yourself or plant your life is what you will uh, sow as you move forward. So if you want to prosper, if you want to be um, flourishing in faithfulness, you plant yourself in faithfulness. He highlighted the fact that Lot didn't do that. So in the second part of the Bible study on Abram, I want to consider the next section of the passage. And over these next few weeks, all we are going to do is take the passages of the Bible as they fall. And tonight, as we look at Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 13, we're going to bounce across the whole of the story, but not because we're leaving bits out, because we're trying to hold it all together. And as we do, I think God has some things to say to us about making choices about our own lives. Pick up this idea with me from last Wednesday night that where we choose to be planted is where we choose, is what we will choose to produce. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 6 to 9, Abram holds on to a promise given to him by God that he will be the father of great nations, that from him many descendants will flow. And throughout his life, Abram becomes someone who holds on to what God has said. Through thick and thin, he doesn't always get it right, which we will see in a moment, but he holds on to what God has said. Look for a moment with me at Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abraham, or Abram, now jump forward to Genesis chapter 13, verse 14. At a crucial moment when Abram and his nephew are separating, we read the Lord said to Abram. Now jump forward to Genesis chapter 15. Look at verse 7. This is another crucial moment. Abram's covenant with God is being sealed. And we read in verse 7, Then he, that's God, said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Now look at verse 13. As the sun goes down, we read that this remarkable vision that I've spoken of before, and perhaps we'll touch on again, but it's too far ahead in our passage for me to dwell on tonight. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know this for certain, that your offspring shall be aliens in the land that is not theirs, and shall be slaves there, and they shall be oppressed for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. That's a prophecy about what would happen when God took the people of Israel out of Canaan, where they are promised that their land is, and takes them to Egypt, where they become oppressed for 400 years. And then they are led out of that land back to Canaan, the land that we're looking at here. And you can read about that in the book of Genesis. And they were in Egypt 400 years. Look at verse um, chapter 17 with me. Another key moment in the life of Abram. As he is, the sign of the covenant is sealed upon him and his family. Verse 3. 
Then Abraham fell on his face and God said to him, and he reminds him again of the covenant. Look at verse 9. God said to Abraham, look at verse 15. God said to Abraham, look at verse 19. God said, look at verse 22. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abram. Throughout this man's life, there is a vivacious, living, ongoing relationship where God speaks to him, where he guides him. And Abram is listening. Now we'll come to what it means for God to speak in a moment. The point I want to make now is that God is speaking. The word, the Hebrew word for speaking is hamar. And it doesn't necessarily mean an audible voice like mine. It could mean a prompting in the heart. It could mean a sense of perception. It could mean an awareness. It can mean words that are spoken out loud. But it can also mean a sense of inner prompting. I don't know about you, but when I read the Old Testament particularly, I am always struck, particularly in Abram's life, Moses' life, Jeremiah's life, Ezekiel's life, with the number of times that it says things like God said or they heard God. Do you not sometimes wonder, what, what do they mean by that? Is it an audible voice every day? I don't think so. I think we sometimes as Christians need to be careful about how we use the phrase, God has spoken to me, don't you? Particularly when we're making decisions and we say to somebody, well, God has told me. How do you question that? How do you help somebody get under the skin of that kind of comment? God told me I should have this job. God told me I should marry this woman. That's always a dangerous thing. <laughs> God told me I should join this church. God told me I should leave this church. Those are phrases that we, one needs to be careful about. I think sometimes it's because we are seeking a level of confirmation about our choices that we might be afraid of having to face the fact that we're just making choices. And it's okay to make choices. It's okay to decide, actually, at this point in my life, with what I'm facing, I need to make some choices. That's okay. Just be careful that you don't then extend that into some sense of um, divine authenticity that you believe cannot be tested. Unless it is God. Because God doesn't change his mind. Our circumstances can change. God can look like he changes his mind. We can be in one place and he can tell us to go somewhere else. And you think, well, how did that happen so quickly? Well, according to the Gospel of John, the Spirit can blow in whatever direction he wants. Have you ever had that experience? You feel as if God is blowing you in one direction and a wind from nowhere blows you in another direction. And you think to yourself, what's going on here? It's not necessarily chaotic. It just feels chaotic. Because God, the Holy Spirit, is deciding to change the direction of your life. And he brought you to a place to bring you to another place. And that's okay. There's something exciting about that that we should enjoy and celebrate. But what I think is interesting about Abram's story, particularly for tonight, is not only that God speaks to him, but that he also, on occasions, is recorded as appearing to him. But not as often. So look at Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. Then the Lord 
appeared to Abram and said to him. Look at Genesis chapter 17. The sign of the covenant. Verse 1. A crucial moment in Abram's life when he wasn't sure whether all of the things that he believed about God's promises to him were true. We read in verse 1 of chapter 17, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, you'll read, you'll read, you don't need to look them all up, you'll be glad to know. You'll read similar phrases in Genesis chapter 18, verse 1 and verse 9. But in those two examples, we are told that it is the angel of the Lord that speaks to Abram, once from earth and once from heaven. I think that we can understand that to be the voice of God. You'll also read the phrase in one way or another in verse 10, verse 13, verse 26, verse 30, verse 31, verse 32 of chapter 18. And in chapter 21 and verse 12 and chapter 22, verses 1, 2, 11 and 15. The word appear means in Hebrew is racha. And it means took a good solid look inspected considered it doesn't mean glanced it means perceived on those occasions in Abram's life when he was at a profoundly important junction God appeared to him he looked into his soul God does that in our lives. There are moments when we do not know what to do. We don't know where we're at. Perhaps our faith in God's promises is wavering a little. And God looks into our souls. He considers where we are. Because he has something to say to us. And all of those verses about God appearing are accompanied with God speaking. What is it? that underpins all of that speaking and appearing. You might think that that's an obvious question, but sisters and brothers, this is one of the most important questions that you will ever face in your life. This question sits at the heart of the Jewish faith. The answer to this question sits at the heart of Christianity itself. This isn't a little Bible study to fill a Wednesday night. The answer to the, what did God say to Abraham, is one of the foundation stones that holds up the church and holds up God's people, Israel. And we need to consider it. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 to 3, if you go back to the passage that we read, we have a general promise given to Abraham Davy looked at it last week, although um, he was focusing more on the personalities around these words. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That general promise, there's no mention of children here. 
although it's assumed. That general promise is the foundation stone of the Old and the New Testament. And therefore, if you are a Christian tonight, that general promise is the foundation of your faith. And if God can break that promise, he can break any promise. And that's a problem. Now, if you jump forward for a moment to verse 7 of chapter 12, you will get a more detailed aspect of that word, that promise spoken to Abram. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, first use of that word in Abram's story, literally in Hebrew, to your seed, I will give this land. Now those of us, and I would include myself in this number, that believe that um, there is a connection between the Israel of God and the land of Israel, we point to this verse and say this is evidence of a promise that God made. Some of you will disagree with that. To your offspring I will give this land. There's a specific, there's a specificity. Specificity. In that promise. And what you find is as you read through the life of Abraham from Genesis 11, the end of it, all the way through to his death in Genesis chapter 25, the promises that God gives him unfold like a canvas. But they all root back to Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. All the promises to Abraham, to Jacob, to Isaac to Rebecca, to Rachel, to Israel as the people of God, the promises that they stand on in Joshua, the promises that they stand on through the conquest, which never fully happened, the promises that they stand on in the period of the judges and the establishment of the kings, all the way through to the end of the northern kingdom when it's taken into captivity in uh, 722 BC, in the, when the southern kingdom is taken into captivity in 606 and then brought back to Jerusalem and Israel in 537. And then the 400 year space between the end of the Old Testament when Ezra and Nehemiah are rebuilding the temple and the wall. And there's a gap of 400 years, just like there's a gap between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus, a similar range of years also. And in that period of time, there is something called the Maccabean Revolt when messiahs arise and, and there are desolations placed in the temple in Jerusalem and a pig's head. A pig's head is placed there by one of the rulers called Antiochus Epiphanes. And it's a great insult to Jewish people. And all the promises that God hasn't finished with them remain and root and flow out of Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. And as you trace your way through Abram's life, you discover that these promises are the things that he comes back to again and again and again. But in Genesis 12, 7, when he hears this promise about his offspring, we are told that he builds an altar there to the Lord. What is an altar? Well, it's a site of sacrifice. It costs something. An altar is a moment of memory where we point back and say, I remember. An altar is an act of intentionality. It's a stake in the ground. I will mark this moment. 
I will mark this place. I will mark this encounter. An altar is a place of focus. Abram didn't build an altar to anything or anyone. We're told very clearly in the Hebrew Bible that he built an altar to the Lord. And the word for Lord there is Yahweh, the word that I explored with you at the weekend. Then we are told in verse 8 that he continues to the hill country on the east of Bethel, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. Let's pause and think about that for a moment. Abram's following the call of God, as Davy helped us understand last week, and he began to unpack something that I want to pick up with you now. He's deciding where to place his tent. He's deciding where to live. He's, he's deciding the environment that his spiritual and physical life is going to take place in. And if I was to show you a map tonight of Ai and Bethel, places that are mentioned in the conquest as well, they're not very far apart. And they're right in the middle of the land that God promised Abraham, or Abram before his name is changed in Genesis 17. And Abram pitches his tent right in the middle of them. Right at the center of God's promise. Right in the middle. What's really interesting is what it might mean for us to live in the middle of the promise of God in our lives tonight. Let's think about the places. Bethel and Ai, famous places in Israel's history. Bethel means house of God. It means house of peace. It means it becomes associated with house of bread. It means security. It stands for God's best. Ai, literally in Hebrew, means house of ruins. House of disaster. House of destruction. And it's in the direction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Not a reference to sexual sin in this context, just a reference to two cities that are walking and living not as God wants. And he builds another altar there, we're told in Genesis chapter 12, verse 8, and we're told he calls upon the name of the Lord. The Hebrew word is chara, and it means petitions or cries out to in desperation and public declaration. He, he makes a statement right in the middle of this land that this is God's. And he is in God's purpose and he is in God's will and he's holding on to what God has for him. And it's to this place that he returns in Genesis chapter 13 verses 1 to 3 after um, Sarah and he, uh, he lies about Sarah in Egypt. Genesis chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him, into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. He journeyed on by stages from the Negev as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first 
And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. He does the same again. But sisters and brothers, consider this. And I mean this with all seriousness because it's an important thing. Our lives are only ever one decision away from destruction. One decision. A glance across a room. A decision about a relationship. A decision about our hearts. A decision about our spirituality. A decision. There are hundreds of them. You've often, you've probably heard it said many times by teachers, preachers, and Bible commentators that the church doesn't have any grandchildren. We must all make decisions for ourselves to follow Christ. I think that is true. But congregations are only ever one generation away from extinction. The church in Northern Ireland is only ever one generation away from extinction. And your life and mine can be one decision away from destruction. Our problem is that we think that we can make a decision here and it doesn't matter. I'm not putting fear on you because there's a way back. But if you make decisions out of rashness, out of fear, out of selfishness, which is what Lot did, we're going to look at that in a moment, then the consequences of those decisions can be catastrophic. Abram's life calls us to remember that we must make decisions that look toward Bethel, not toward Ai. Now, I can't tell you what decisions you're facing in your life tonight, nor can you tell me what decisions I am facing in mine. I don't have that prophetic gift. But I know you will be facing them And I ask you to consider carefully the choices that you make and tilt your tent to Bethel. Look to God's grace. Look to God's goodness. Look to God's mercy. Look to God's care. At this point, reflect with me for a moment on Abram. He is holding on to what God has promised. He is planting his life in what God has said. So let me ask you, what has God promised you? Has God called you to something? There are general promises that we have from his word of eternal life and grace and mercy and forgiveness and hope. And they're wonderful. They're enough for us to hold on to and thrive in for the rest of our lives. Amen? But what if God has also placed his hand on you for something? Be careful not to assume that God changes his mind about that thing. Abram held on to that all his life. God made a promise. And through thick and thin, through getting it right and getting it wrong, he sticks with what God has said. When God calls us, when he forms us and fashions us, perhaps our lives take twists and turns and we have to change. I think that is right. 
Our seasons are different. Our circumstances change. But I think I have discovered in my life that the core identity that he's given me won't change. Abram's called to be the father of a nation. Now, you know the story as well as I do. He tries to work that out himself. He tries to force it. He lets his wife force it. He lets all kinds of circumstances around him force it. He, he, he panics when he goes into Egypt with his wife Sarai and he tells her to pretend that she's his sister. He does the same when he comes before Abimelech in Genesis chapter 20. His story is not... You should be encouraged by this. Abram's story isn't the story of a man who walked in straight lines. His story is the story of a man who crisscrossed himself several times. And all of us said, thank goodness for that. He got it right and he got it wrong. He got it right and he got it wrong. And he got it right and he got it wrong. But what was the true north? What was the compass point that he returned to throughout his life? God promised me something. God promised me something. And he wasn't willing to move away from that. Because the promise of God to Abraham sits at the very heart of Abraham's life and purpose. And sisters and brothers, it sits at the very heart of the story of Israel of the church and of the world and your salvation depended on it when you read Genesis 13 and forward you discover lots of different things look at chapter 13 verses 15 to 16 for a minute another expansion of the promise For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring could also be counted. Look at Genesis chapter 17, verse 4. God enunciating another aspect of this promise. As for me... This is my covenant with you. You shall be the ancestor of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the ancestor of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land where you are now an alien all the land of Canaan for a perpetual holding and I will be their God that's quite clear there's something really interesting happens in the change of name for Sarai and Abram normally there's a significant change in meaning when a name is changed in the Bible but with Sarai and Abram it's not so clear that there's a significant change in meaning but there is another significant change which sounds a little bit geeky will you be geeky with me for a moment say Sarai Sarai. say Abram Abram. now some of you didn't say that David you didn't say that (laughs) now say Sarai. Sarai and say Abraham The difference is, you can say Sarai and Abram, 
without using something called the aspirated consonant. Sarah, Abraham. Those of you that were here on Sunday will have heard me explain that the pronunciation of the divine name, Yahweh, which is used in Genesis 12 and 13, is difficult. The closest that we can do to pronounce it is At this central moment of covenant, Abram and Sarai become Abraham and Sarah. And in Hebrew, it's even stronger. It's Abraham and Sarah which cannot be said without breathing out the divine name. At the moment of our conversion or coming into the family of God, our identities are changed. The Bible describes it in ways that Protestant theology has lost over the last 50 years. It was there a hundred years ago much more clearly. It's called an ontological change. Ontology is the very essence of our being. When you were born again, if you are born again, you became a new person. You might not have felt different. You might not have felt your body changing. That's not what I mean. Spiritual life was quickened in you, and you now live in that spiritual life forever. That spiritual life will carry you into eternity. It is the equivalent of the divine name spoken over you and into you. And we now live in that new identity forever. And that means that we have to learn to work out what it is to sit in the promises and purposes of God. Even when it's hard. Think about Abram with me for a moment. In Genesis chapter 13... He and his nephew are too successful to share the same land. And it creates a division between them. And they have to work out what they're going to do. But in Genesis chapter 12, Abram struggles with the promise of God because he asks his wife to lie. As well as facing the crisis that he does with Lot. In Genesis chapter 14, he comes to Lot's rescue. Lot's choice, which I'll come back to in a moment, was a disastrous one. In Genesis chapter 15, he struggles with the promise as he wrestles out what it means to be called by God. And it's from there in verse 6 that we have a powerful picture of Abraham being justified by faith, which is picked up in the New Testament as the heartbeat of conversion. In Genesis chapter 16, he allows his wife and those around him to try and force God's hand with the birth of Ishmael. In Genesis chapter 17, he struggles with his own fragility and his frailty. But listen to what he says towards the end of his life. Go all the way toward Genesis chapter 24 for a moment. Verse 7. He dies in chapter 25, verse 8. Toward the end of his life, Abraham says this, The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth and who spoke to me and swore to me, 
To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you. You shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. In other words, the promise that he held in his head and in his heart shaped the decisions that he made in his life. It wasn't this kind of spiritual truth that was going on in his head somewhere. They were shaping the concrete decisions and priorities that he was setting for the rest of his life. The same is true for you and for I. God has spoken to me through his son, Jesus Christ, and to you. We no longer need to try and work out what God is like. We don't have to guess. We don't have to grope around in the dark. God speaking to us is a core part of our identity as the people of God. It's why I'm a Pentecostal. God has not fallen silent. He speaks, but how does he speak? How does he communicate with you and with me today? He speaks through his word, the Bible. He speaks through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He speaks through his spirit into our hearts. He speaks through you to me. He speaks through me to you. He speaks through us. And at the heart of this story sits this man, Abraham, for whom life was not always easy. Turn to the New Testament with me, to Romans chapter 4. Abraham is mentioned dozens and dozens and dozens of times in the New Testament that we don't have time to go into. But this chapter sits at the heart of Paul's understanding of what it means to believe in God and to have a relationship with him through grace. Abraham wasn't saved or brought into the family of God by law or by observance. He was brought into the family of God by faith. There's a reminder to us, which is a theological one, and it's important. The people in the Old Testament weren't saved by law. They were saved by grace. There's no difference between the Old and the New Testament means of salvation. It is always grace. It is always compassion and mercy. It still is. What we read in Romans chapter 4 is Paul's superb setting out of Abraham as an example of faith. He talks about him in verse 1 and 2 and 3 and 9 and 12 and 13 and 16. Explaining his choices and how he was listening to God and responding. And that was the heartbeat of his relationship with God. Believing that what God said, God meant. Turn your eye though to verse 18. Listen to these words. Hoping against hope. Abraham believed that he would become the father of many nations according to what was said. So numerous shall your descendants be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body 
which was already as good as dead, for he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Therefore, his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's an accounting term. It was put into his ledger. Now, the words that was reckoned to him were written not for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be reckoned to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus from our Lord from the dead, who was handed over to death for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. Do you see how important that is? When everything pointed the other way, Abraham still trusted God. Because he believed God didn't change his mind. God made him a promise. And he was determined to experience it. To hold on to it. And not let circumstances dictate it. This is hard to do, I think. And in the midst of his story, there is this powerful picture of two different perspectives in Genesis 13. Lot chooses the road that's easy, the obvious path. When there is this um, heaviness of responsibility that rests on Lot and on Abram, Abram becomes defenseless. He doesn't tell Lot what to do. He doesn't dictate to Lot what his choices must be. He simply says to Lot, you choose what you want and I'll have the the other bit as they work out what land they're going to share. He completely lifts his hands off the situation and he says, you choose. You choose what you want to do and I will trust God. And we read that Lot looked... And he chose based on what was obvious and in front of him. He chose the land that looked better. He chose the land that looked more profitable. He chose the road that looked easiest. He chose the path that was dictated by circumstances and the situation. He didn't choose God's path. Be careful not to allow that to happen. Here's what we read in Genesis chapter 13. After the choice has been made. Verse 14. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him. Raise your eyes now. And look from the place where you are. Northwards and southwards and eastwards and westwards. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth sort of. One can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Rise up, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which were at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. What's shaping your choices tonight? I'm not sure that we can ignore circumstances. But make sure that they are not the only thing that are determining your priorities. Towards the end of 2000 and 
17. I believe that God called me back to Northern Ireland, to the island of Ireland. And I believe that he called me to lead this church. And whether that's easy or hard, I will do it. I will stand on what God said. Not on circumstances. Not on your opinion of me. If you ever want me to go, just let me know. You'll ask me once. I believe with all of my heart that I'm following God's plan. And in the end, that is what holds you. Am I to stay married to this woman? Am I to start again when somebody has broken my heart, when they've broken their promise, when they've broken the covenant and I find myself alone? Am I to stay alone because they broke a covenant with me? No, you're not. You can have a fresh start. You can have a new beginning. You can step into a new chapter because the grace of God is deeper. God is quicker to forgive than the church is. Amen? You're not so sure? He definitely is. I'll trust God's grace any day and every day to the grace of a church. But when God has asked you something, when God has told you something, when God has whispered something into your soul, hold on to it. And when you feel that circumstances are putting pressure on you or you're getting stressed or anxious or uncertain or your self-confidence falls or you're not clear about the next step, hold on to what God said. Because it is the only thing that is unshakable in the storm. But it is unshakable. It holds us through everything and anything. So my prayer for you tonight as the musicians come to join us again is that you will dig into what God has promised you. That you will hold on to what God has said to you. And that you will fix your eyes to what God wants for your life. And that you will pitch your tent toward Bethel. And away from destruction. And take seriously the call of God. Because it is the most exciting and the safest place to be. It isn't necessarily the easiest.